0: Hello there! Welcome to the rules episode for Applied Dungeoneering, the newest rules-loving Dungeons & Dragons podcast to grace your ears. I'm Josh, the Dungeon Master.
1: And I'm Daniel, one of the players.
0: And today, we're going to give you a quick introduction on how to play 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons, just so you understand what we're talking about during the main show.
1: Yeah, and even if you already know the rules... It'll be worth your time to find out how we handle certain aspects of the game, since a lot of people play in different ways. If you're tuning in for the
0: first time, you should know that we nerds here at Applied Engineering love D&D for the rules, which set guidelines for how we feel like the game should be run.
1: Yeah, we have fun with the game, and generally like the rules just the way they are. Sticking to the rules lets all of Wizards of the Coast's hard work take its course. And therefore, it lets everyone at the table feel valued in balanced gameplay. Sometimes we mess up or get confused, but honestly, most of the time the answer is right there in the Dangon Player's Handbook or Dungeon Master's Guide. In short, we feel cool by staying in school. Exactly.
0: There are a lot of other rules light tabletop RPGs out there that are really great, but we prefer the rules of 5th edition because they're really streamlined without throwing the rules out of the window completely. we'll try to be brief, since you'd have to be a total nerd to listen to an episode dedicated to rules, or an even bigger one to record it. Anyway, before we get started, I do want to talk to you about a few things that we do a little differently. This doesn't change any of the rules, but if you read the rulebooks, they reference specific pieces of story and lore from the default setting for D&D Adventures. The universe that we use on this show is a homebrew one that I created, with its own story and lore, and even customized monsters, so a lot of things are going to be different from what the books say. However, we are still religious about following the rules that are put forward by the Dungeons and Dragons team, so you won't see any variations
1: there. Anyway,
0: with that out of the way, are you ready to start, Daniel?
1: yep a and cheese.
0: All right. So, Dungeons & Dragons is a tabletop role-playing game where a group of players sit around a table and role-play as characters in a setting created by the Dungeon Master, or DM, who runs the game. A good portion of the game is consumed by role-playing. In our case, that means we act out our characters and have conversations, we describe what our characters are doing, and we make decisions in character. A lot of this is improvised acting, so there really aren't any hard rules for this part. The other parts of the game are made up of various encounters and challenges that the dungeon master creates for the players to overcome. The rules of the game create a system that gives the players' characters strengths and weaknesses and sets the rules for how they can overcome these challenges. The way we determine the outcome of most situations is by rolling a 20-sided die. This elegant icosahedron is used to determine how well a character performs at certain tasks, whether that be overcoming physical challenges, dealing with other people, or avoiding an explosion that was definitely not caused by an adventuring party.
1: That only happened, uh, once. Mm Mm-hmm,
0: sure. Regardless, when you attempt to do something that isn't a guaranteed success, you roll the die, add some bonuses to it, and compare your result to a number called a DC.
1: Which is short for difficulty class, and it measures how hard a task is to complete.
0: Correct! The dungeon master can assign any value they want depending on how challenging the task is. If you manage to roll a number equal to or higher than the DC, you succeed. Otherwise, you fail, and there are usually some sort of consequences for failure.
1: You mentioned bonuses just a second ago why don't you tell the beautiful listener at home about where those come from?
0: Sure. Your bonuses are determined by six ability scores, which define the physical and mental strengths and weaknesses for all creatures in the game. These scores are Strength, Dexterity, Constitution, Wisdom, Intelligence, and Charisma. Depending on how high or low your score is, you may get to add a bonus to the roll, or you may take
1: a penalty. And let's not forget about skills and proficiency.
0: There are also skills attached to the ability scores that are used in more specific circumstances. For example, you add your dexterity bonus to roles made using the acrobatics skill, and also when using the stealth skill. And then proficiency is a modifier that you tack onto a particular skill that you are, well, proficient in. It means you're an expert. So when you're proficient with a skill, you also get to add another bonus based on your level. Now, let's look at an example. Let's pretend there's an adventurer named Daniel. Me? No, no, no. Daniel the adventurer, not Daniel the engineer.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Anyway, Daniel the adventurer is walking down the stairs in a dungeon. Normally, he wouldn't have to make any rolls to get to the bottom safely. However, If a goblin dropped a pot of chicken alfredo on the stairs just a little bit ago, Daniel would need to make a dexterity check with the acrobatics skill to avoid slipping and hurting himself. If he meets or exceeds the DC, it would mean he doesn't fall and get hurt, while a failure would result in injury. Daniel has a low dexterity, and he is not a proficient acrobat, so he's most likely going to fall and get hurt.
1: And that's not good.
0: No, it's not. However, in another example, we have Daniel the Adventurer trying to convince the dungeon's owner to evict the Goblin for his Chicken Alfredo-based crime. In this case, he would have to make a Charisma check using the Persuasion skill to do so. Since he's good at talking, he would add his Proficiency bonus to the role, and since he has a high Charisma, his chances are significantly improved. Without all these bonuses, it would be highly unlikely that he would succeed.
1: Yeah, there's no contest there. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Anyway, our adventurers will encounter many challenges just like these over the course of the show, but environmental and social challenges are only half the game.
1: The other half is combat, where you beat up the bad guys. Combat uses a lot of the same things that skill checks do, but it's a little different, mainly in that it's a more defined process with specific steps. A combat starts when one or more persons decide they want to beat the crap out of one or more other persons. To begin, everyone around the table rolls initiative, and the dungeon master rolls initiative for all enemies involved in the encounter. Your initiative is based on your dexterity bonus, just like the skills Josh mentioned earlier, and your initiative roll determines what order you act in for each round of combat, going from highest to lowest. When it's time for someone to act, That means it's their character's turn. The turns are where all the action happens.
0: And where the character deaths happen.
1: We'll get to that. On each person's turn, there's a lot a character can do, but their turn basically boils down to three things. A move action, a standard action, and a bonus action. Characters can use all three or none of these on a given turn in any order. A move action lets you move up to your movement speed, which is listed on your character sheet, so that you can close in on or run away from your enemies. Your standard action is used for most major activities, such as attacking with a weapon, casting a spell, or otherwise doing anything major. Finally, the bonus action is circumstantial. It's only used if you have an ability that allows you to use it. Now let's break that down into an example. Let's say we have an adventure named... Josh. Wait, what? No, not Josh the Engineer, Josh the Adventure. Oh, gotcha, okay. Anyway, Josh has a club and wants to hit the goblin that Daniel the Adventure just got evicted as added vigilante justice. In order to do so, he would use his move action to close the distance to the goblin and take a standard action to attack and roll a 20-sided die to determine his chances of hitting a creature's AC or armor class.
0: Which is just like a DC, but specifically for hitting a creature.
1: Yeah, and just like with skills, you add your character's ability score modifier associated with that weapon to this attack roll, increasing or decreasing it. If you meet or exceed the creature's AC, you roll the weapon dice to deal damage to the target. The goblin then loses hit points, equal to the weapon die roll. If it hits zero hit points, it dies or drops unconscious. For this example, we're going to assume it got hit but survived. Josh can take it out next turn, if he survives. Oh no, the suspense is killing me. Once Josh is done with his turn, the goblin gets to take its turn. It doesn't have to move, so it can save its move action for later. It can then attack Josh with its short sword, but rolls less than Josh's AC, so nothing happens. However, the sneaky goblin is also holding a poison dagger in its left hand meaning that it can use its bonus action to attack with the dagger as well. On a hit, Josh takes damage from the dagger and is also poisoned. Now Josh needs to make a constitution saving throw to avoid being poisoned. A saving throw is like a skill check, but it doesn't use skills and is usually used to overcome harmful effects instead of trying to succeed at a task. Anyway, Josh fails his saving throw and takes all of the poison damage, which brings him to zero and he is dying. Now, a player character going down to zero hit points in combat is different than a dungeon master controlled monster going down. When a player character goes down, they get to make a special kind of saving throw, called a death saving throw, at the end of each of their turns. Our dungeon master really loves those. Yeah, I do, but not when it's a character named after me. A death saving throw does not have any modifiers, it's just a straight roll. For each successful roll, you mark a success, and a failure for each failed roll. On three successes, you stabilize, but on three failures, you bleed out and die right there. Enemies usually don't attack down characters unless they have good reason to. So in our little example here, the goblin is going to assume that Josh is dead and use the rest of its movement to run away, then end its turn.
0: Well, I really want to save this adventurer... So let's quickly move on. I think I'm going to need your help with this next segment, though, because it's the one that is usually the most confusing for newcomers.
1: Are you talking about all the extra math and stuff?
0: Nope, I'm talking about magic. You know, it's the thing that makes our story a fantasy adventure.
1: Ah, gotcha.
0: Anyway, a lot of classes have the ability to harness magic to cast a variety of named spells, which are outlined in the player's handbook. These spells do anything from putting a creature to sleep, to dealing damage
1: with fire, and even to changing them into a frog! Half of the base classes can cast spells to a varying degree from the get-go, but later on in the game, almost every class has the potential to learn magic if they want.
0: Yeah, it's pretty neat. And as characters get stronger, they gain access to higher-level spells. Now, spell level does not correspond directly with character level. There's something completely different. For example, a 9th level wizard does not simply cast 9th level spells. It can be a little confusing for new players to keep track of this, which is why there is a nifty table on the Wizards page in the Player's Handbook that tells you what level spells you can cast
1: at each level. In addition, it also tells you how many times you can cast each level of spell, They've organized spellcasting into slots to help keep track of how many spells of each level you have left. They even gave them a really cool and creative name so that you'll never forget about them.
0: Oh yeah? What'd they call them?
1: Spell slots. So inspiring. But yeah, your classes page in the Player's Handbook tells you how many spell slots you have for each spell level, so it's pretty easy to keep track. Josh, do you have a quick example for us? Yes, I do. So
0: the way a spell works is pretty simple. In our example, Daniel the Adventurer finds Josh at the bottom of the stairs, dying from the goblin's attack. He's short on time, so he chooses a first-level healing spell from the list of spells he knows. Then, he takes an action and expends one of his two first-level spell slots to save his friend. Now, he can only cast one more first-level spell from his list until he rests. But, I think it was worth it to bring his friend back.
1: And the adventurers continue on deeper into the dungeon, where they will face even deadlier challenges.
0: And get that goblin. Now, there are other things as well, such as character classes and background, that can change the way many of the things we've talked about work. But that would take a while to explain, and I think that should be pretty easy to pick up while listening to the show, since we'll be talking about it as it comes up. The rules we covered here should be enough to let you know what's going on, but if you want more in-depth descriptions, I highly
1: recommend grabbing the free basic rules document off of the Wizards of the Coast website. Anyway, hopefully you didn't fall asleep during that info dump. If you want another quick recap, you can visit our website at applieddungeoneering.com to see our 5e on one page rules reference sheet and to find links to the basic rules for 5th edition. Hope you enjoy the show! Bye, see you in episode one.